Hey, welcome to another episode of Phantom Power, a monthly podcast on sound in the arts and humanities. I'm Mac Haygood. Happy New Year, everyone. Here's looking forward to better times. And also looking forward to another year of Phantom Power. We have a number of shows in the works for you. Um, I'm not sure if I want to get too specific about some of them because I don't want to jinx anything, but... But I think I feel safe in saying that over the next few months, we will have episodes with influential sound scholar Jonathan Stern talking about his new book, cultural critic, writer, and queer studies scholar Karen Tongson on the magic of karaoke, and we'll have Dallas Taylor, host of the fantastic podcast 20,000 Hertz, and he'll take us behind the scenes into the exquisite production of that podcast. And so while I'm getting all of that ready for you, I'm going to do something that I don't think we've done before, which is kind of take you behind the scenes of this podcast, Phantom Power. Recently, I was invited by Dario Linares and Lori Beckstead to be a guest on their show, The Podcast Studies Podcast. I love this, the meta sound of that name. As you may or may not know, there are a lot of academics out there who are not only making podcasts themselves, but also studying podcasts and podcasting as a genre, as a technology, as an industry. And Dario and Lori fall into that camp. Dario is a professor at the University of Brighton in the UK, and Lori is a professor, well, (laughs) her email signature says X-University as she stands in solidarity with indigenous faculty and students at the Toronto University known as Ryerson. Edgerton Ryerson supported a system where uh, indigenous students would be educated separately so that they could be converted to Christianity. Um, So if you want to learn more about all of that, just Google ex-University Canada. But in any case, I was honored to be on their show because I really love what they're doing, which is speaking with the movers and shakers in an emerging academic field. And it's really exciting to hear their discussions with people who are asking questions like, what if we peer reviewed academic podcasts? Or what if we just did our peer review of an academic paper about podcasting in podcast form, which is something that they actually do. There's a couple episodes where... They're basically peer reviewing an article on mic. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's kind, of, kind of really amazing uh, and innovative. But they also interview people with, you know, people coming from the podcasting industry. They interview people who are doing groundbreaking work on AI generated podcasts, scholars studying podcasts in areas that we don't really hear enough about, like the African continent and just so much, right? So Yes, the Podcast Studies Podcast. Link in the show notes. It's a really cool show if you want to get all inception when it comes to podcasting and listen to a podcast by people who study and make podcasts about people who study and make podcasts. And and I'm one of those people. So they had me on. And I hope this isn't too self-serving. But I'm going to share an interview that they did with yours truly. Um, And I just want to share it because I thought Dario asked me such great questions and we kind of got into the sausage making of how and why I do phantom power. And we really got into, I guess, the philosophy behind the show and the potential that I see in taking podcasting seriously as a new format for expressing knowledge. And after the interview, Lori had some intriguing comments as well that really made me rethink some of what I said in the interview about what 
should count as original scholarship when we do it in sound. So without further ado, here is the Podcast Studies podcast hosted by Dario Linares and Lori Beckstead. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Studies podcast. It's our last episode of the year and I'm delighted once again to talk to Laurie Beckstead. Laurie, how are you doing? Hello, Dario. I'm doing really well. I'm through my classes, which is great. Um, and I am looking forward to a December filled with catching up just before the January session yeah. begins. So. Um, so, yeah, let's get into the main part of the, the episode now. So this is an interview that I did maybe a few, must be about a month ago now with uh, Mac Haygood, who is a professor of comparative media studies at Miami University in Ohio. And he's also the producer and host of one of my favorite podcasts, the Phantom Power podcast. And because of that, I've, I've wanted to speak to him for uh, a long time. I'm a huge fan of that podcast since I came across it, particularly because it belies the idea that academic podcasts you know, usually don't have high production values. This podcast has the highest production values you could possibly want to hear. It certainly does. It's really great. I love it too. Yeah. And then in doing the research for uh, my chapter in the podcast studies book that, that Laurie and I are, are putting together, I came across an article he wrote about academic podcasting and defining academic podcasting. And this is in the relatively new book on podcast preservation and historiography entitled Saving New Sounds by Jeremy Wade Morris and Eric Hoyt. So yeah, Mac was superb in this interview, I thought, and uh, definitely a must listen for podcast studies scholars. So here it is. my great pleasure to welcome Mac Haygood onto the Podcast Studies podcast. I've been waiting to speak to him for quite a while, actually. So it's it's great to have you here, Mac. Welcome. Thank you, Dario. I'm really excited to be here. It's my great pleasure. I've been uh, reading your work quite a bit in the last uh, few weeks and uh, borrowing from it a lot, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, a little bit for sure. You're based at the, the University of Miami. What's the situation for you right now in terms of uh, research and teaching? So I'm at Miami University, which is actually in Ohio, and, um, and oh right, right, right. Everyone gets that <laughs> gets that mixed up, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm in the Department of Media Journalism and Film. I'm an associate professor, and my scholarship is mostly on sound. And I've kind of fallen into a little bit of being a podcast academic, I suppose, just by way of me being a podcast producer. Yeah, so I would say I'm kind of new to the field of podcast studies, although I guess it's a new field, so I'm probably not the only one. Yeah, we're all new to it, really. You know, including me. So similarly, I sort of come from a I come from a film background. So mm -hmm. how my podcasting has evolved has kind of evolved as academic podcasting has kind of expanded into a into a thing, I guess. So just looking at your background as well, it seems to me that you do have this combination or you do sit very much between being a practitioner but also a theoretician 
at the same time. And I wondered, you know, is your original background more in the practice side and you've started to kind of write more or is it the other way around for you? So I definitely had a really strong interest in music my entire life. I grew up in New Orleans, which is just such a musically rich place and a sonically rich place, really. Um, And I played in bands since I was in high school. I worked in college radio. I had a kind of brief period of time where I was working in the online um, music instrument retail world. So I was a chief editor of web content for a startup during the early, the first dot-com era um, where we were selling musical instruments. And there were like these very basic things that needed to happen. Like, well, we need pictures of the instruments on the internet because <laughs> they, those, those things were all trapped in catalog paper catalogs back then. And we needed written descriptions of the products and stuff. So that, that was part of my background. I also was an avid traveler and I would bring a recorder with me and I, I would, did field recordings throughout Southeast Asia. I was based in in Taiwan for a while. For, I lived there for almost four years. Um, got really interested in the music in Asia and the sounds there. And then I came back to the States and played in bands for a while, did that sort of thing. And when I rather late in life thought about becoming an academic, I heard about this field of ethnomusicology where people seemed to be doing a lot of the things that I had just been kind of intuitively doing as an amateur all this time. So I studied uh, folklore and ethnomusicology at Indiana University, which is sort of one of the the early centers of, of that study. And, and then I uh, got a little frustrated with what I found to be at the time, not enough attention to the mediated aspects of a musical experience. I think that's changed a lot in ethnomusicology. I, I wouldn't say that's true today, but at the time it felt that way to me at least. And so I switched to media studies. And then the more I work I did, the more interested I got in sound itself rather than music. I felt that music was so complex and and multifaceted, you know, that it has these representational aspects and these affective aspects and then these musicological aspects and there's so much going and sociological aspects right there's so much going on that I, I felt like I wanted to find something a little bit simpler where I could identify some really kind of concrete things that were happening with the sound itself and that's kind of how I stumbled into the world of, of sound studies and um, I wound up doing a dissertation on what I eventually came to call Orphic media, which are sound technologies that people use to create a comfortable sense of space. Um, and, and so those include things like white noise machines and uh, a, a series of records in the 1970s and 80s called Environments that had titles like Woodmasted, Woodmasted Sailboat or Ultimate Seashore. Um, and all the way up through apps that people use today that have relaxing sounds and of course noise canceling headphones so that that's kind of where i wound up in my research trajectory i definitely want to uh, come back to that stuff particularly i think towards the end um because i've just that's the last thing i've just been reading and listening to you on so it's just it's really interesting stuff and i think it leads to discussions about what the future of 
sound not just as as you talked about a carrier of information but but kind of like a media interface you know are we entering a new era um because of that but just before we get off this sort of you know the bio, biographical trip it, it's interesting isn't it when you find you're doing something all your life and then you're finding something that that it's kind of revelatory when it's like oh yeah this is what i've always been doing and now there's a there's a sort of discipline that i can put my put my name to in in that sense yeah, and I just wondered, we've gone through the last couple of years that we, we have, have. I don't need to sort of define that. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. And I, I've sort of discovered that there's a self-reflexive element in my thinking about my own career and what I do and what I'm interested in that has taken new directions because of podcasting and because of what's going on right now. And I'm just wondering, has that affected you at all in that way? Or have you noticed it in the students, you know, what kind of students pick the courses that you do? Are they interested in kind of sound as a, as a practices or, or is it more about, you know, the sort of sociological, cultural, theoretical elements that, that underpin why they pick the courses that you particularly tr- teach? Yeah, I mean, well, maybe maybe I'll, I'll take the student and teaching side first and then see if we come back around to the more personal side. But I, I get a lot of students who honestly don't know what they're getting into when they take my class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds familiar. Um, and the way I think about my teaching in general is that I really want to reach students where they live. And I really have this conviction that what we do matters and can matter in their individual lives. And to think about listening to sound and experiencing sound as a kind of praxis as a, as a, as a way to be in the physical present and to be reflexive and, and notice this interplay between our physical world and our mental world, the relationship between hearing oneself think and hearing the external sounds around oneself. But then of course, also having that cultural studies dimension of thinking about how those two things connect to the social and to power and to politics, right? And I think doing sound studies is an opportunity to be awake and that that can really matter in students' individual lives. I know it's mattered in my own. And that's that's why I do this. I, you know, I think, and this might be characteristic of people who come to the academy later in life, but like, I'm not that interested in how many angels are dancing on the head of the pin, you know, like the theoretical questions are, are deeply interesting to me, but they're deeply interesting to me because I think they matter practically. And so for some students that they really, really connect with that, I can't say that every student does, but I can see it connecting with many of them. And I also don't, don't want to say this is something that's special to sound. I think someone could come in and do a class on smell <laughs> and 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 have that same kind of awareness of the physical environment and thinking about how how that interplay happens yeah i totally take on board what you're what you're saying there and, and even the kind of the way that you're saying it with regards to the idea that being within a practice leads to new ways of thinking completely chimes with how sort of coming into podcasting from a non-radio, non-music, non-sound studies background has kind of reformulated many of the things and, and even sort of led me to 
go back and reappraise that what you're talking about in terms of how we understand knowledge and experience which you know is is just fascinating and if i may if i may because that that makes me think of something like increasingly what i'm trying to do in the classroom is because i've had that experience as well that you speak of like this podcasting as a praxis that is deeply meaningful to me as the practitioner, right? And so increasingly, I'm trying to move towards audio production as praxis in my classroom, which is tricky because I don't have a background as a production teacher. I mean, I've been recording sound ever since I was a kid. I got a four track recorder, cassette recorder, like way back in the day. I I was a hitting play and pause on my CD player, like, cause I didn't have a sampler. So I would like sample like <laughs> little bits of music and sound just like in this really rudimentary way of like, like I've been doing this stuff for a long time, but I've never, I've never been like taught a studio class. And now that I'm trying to take my sound studies theory class and turn that into this kind of half theory, half production class, that's challenging. Um, and I don't, I don't really feel like I'm doing a good job of it yet, to be honest. It's interesting because it's the same. It's like now, I, you know, the podcast I produce apart from this one, which is very clearly is where, you know, it does what it says on the tin, hopefully, you know, te- teaching, a, <laughs> teaching a film course. Then obviously, that, like my first podcast was about, about cinema. And what has been interesting, it's, it's gone from being just a podcast that comments on cinema. So cinema is the primary medium in my head and then podcasting is the the thing that is used to big up and talk about cinema to me being more interested in not just what podcasting can do, but almost the, like the interrelation. Can can podcasts be cinematic without images? And, you know, I've, I've sort of related very much to Phantom Power in that regard, particularly that episode you did on, on silent cinema, which was really, really sort of tapped into that idea, I think. Oh, well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, like how how can we be cinematic by using sound in podcasting? And, you know, of course, in podcasting, we only have four tools at our disposal, right? We have voice, sound, music, and silence. Those are the only things we have to work with. And that's a, that's a wonderful challenge just to have that small set of tools and, and to see what kinds of images and resonances you can bring to life with with only those before we get on to talking about phantom power directly which i think in terms of encouraging what you might call imagineering you know in in the (laughs) mind through sound which is exactly what that podcast does i just wondered when did you register or if you think back was there a moment when you sort of realized that podcasting was a thing you know in terms of your own listening and you thought actually this is now going to start to influence my teaching and my research practice oh gosh how do I, you know i feel like i've been listening to podcasts for so long and i didn't it was sort of always in the back of my mind that i might like to make a podcast particularly as you know sound studies folks are very familiar with the frustration of of writing on the page about sound (laughs) and and um so that was just always thinking about that but it really took my my friend and colleague the uh british poet chris cheek who actually now is a ohio transplant i was telling him about this and he's like well let's let's just do it let's write up a grant and and get some money and and do this thing and so he kind of gave me the spur to just 
go ahead and, and stop just idly thinking about it and give it a shot. That was the basic origin story then of Phantom Power. So why don't you just give us a, you know, a synopsis or a vo- overview of what the show is and, and, and tries to do on its, uh, on its episodes? Yeah. So, okay. So it's a, it tries to be monthly, <laughs> but the, the, the production practice, which I imagine we'll be talking about in a bit is, is time consuming. So, um, it doesn't always achieve a monthly output, but it's basically, uh, a show about sound in the arts and humanities. That's the way I describe it. Um, it's an opportunity for me to take written scholarship that I find really interesting and try to find the narrative in it. Um, and so trying to tell a story um, that brings theory to life um, and, and, and using those, those four aspects that I mentioned earlier to do it. So the way that that works sometimes is if I get to speak with a really legendary sound scholar, like say Mara Mills, which we we've done a show with her, like I actually decided not to choose one of her better known works because it didn't have such a great story to tell, um, in terms of me thinking about how to narrativize it on a show. Um, so I picked one of her lesser known works, something she published in a small journal, but it had like a really interesting sound archive that we could use. Um, and, and that sound archive in that case was, um, basically psychological tests for blind people. Um, and, and these kinds of intriguing audio Rorschach tests, and they're very creepy and enigmatic and just amazing sounding. And when I, when I, you know, read about this work and, and, uh, she, she posted it online. So it had like some of the sounds there. I was like, oh my gosh, like this would be such a great episode. And so that story, even though it was something that was rarely cited was an opportunity for, for us to explore the larger themes of Mara Mill's work, which are like the intersection of sound and technology and disability, right? Like they, it, that was all there, even though this wasn't something that gets cited a lot. And, uh, so we interviewed her and, and we used that sound archive and we used music and tried to t- turn it into an interesting story. So that would be an example. So that's the sound, that's the side of s- sound in the humanities. And then the other side is sound in the arts. And so we, we interview sound artists and, you know, look at their work. And, and, uh, so we've, one of our more recent episodes was with Kate Carr, who's an, an accomplished sound artist and field recordist who has her own record label and stuff. It was kind of a nice piece that focused on, uh, especially some of her thoughts about the pandemic and being isolated and, and, and that sort of thing. We've done a show with Lawrence English. Brian Harnetti, uh, just a, a lot of really interesting sound artists. It does give a kind of wonderfully eclectic mix of things that are quite idiosyncratic, but also quite broad. And I think the other thing it does, which I think really good academic podcasts do, and I want to talk about the the, the you know the, the definition of an academic podcast a little bit later on, you know, because that's my thing at the moment and yours as well with, with the piece that you've written. But you know, that sense of accessibility, but also in-depth uh, analysis and articulation, but then also links to 
applications have you talked about before that, that, that people can see where this sits in regard to sound as a, as a cultural phenomenon? I think it's, you know, it's, it's really excellent. Yeah, I mean, you, you said there before, without getting into the kind of nitty gritty of academic funding processes, when you sort of said, okay, we'll, we'll sit down and, and do this, was it with the aim that there would be time and space allocated through the funding for it to be a kind of research output Again, doing that thing where it's taking a medium that in a, in a traditional academic sense probably isn't looked at as, a, as an academic piece of work, but then trying to think, how can we make it in the terms that the audio requires, those four elements that you've talked about, but then actually embed within it that sense of it being an academic research piece of work, you know? Yeah. Oh, boy. That's, a, <laughs> that's such a big question and and something that i'm really grappling with you know the the time piece um when we first got the grant through the miami university humanities center which is uh funded by the national endowment for the humanities i was able to get a course release to really work on the nuts and bolts of of like putting this podcast together and and assembling the equipment finding the the uh the server space, making the website, like all of all of the really boring stuff, but also getting a little catalog of, of episodes ready to, to go out. And then that money ran out. <laughs> and then and then Chris, you know, after because we were only really we only talked about doing this for a year. And after that year, uh, Chris stuck around for a while. But the, eventually he was like, well, I really have a lot of other artistic irons in the fire. And this is so time consuming. And I was like, yeah, it is. <laughs> I get it. You know, so I am in a real like I'm in a place that I think maybe I don't know. I, I, I a lot of folks might be where I am trying to figure out what this counts as on my CV. Like if I'm doing like the translation of Mara Mills's work, that is not original scholarship on my part. You know, it's a, it's a, it's something that is a service to the academic community because we try to, we try to maintain a, a kind of level of erudition that's going to be useful to scholars, but it's also kind of a popularization because we try to always define our terms and make our show accessible to a broader audience. And hey, to be frank, it it's also reaching way more people than any academic article I'll, I will ever write. <laughs> and so so like, but what does that really mean? You know, like I, I, don't, I don't know. And I, I could contrast that with a, the episode that I'm working on right now, which is our most recent episode is about the um, the founder of acoustic ecology, R. Murray Schaefer. And it's a two part, um, you know, he passed away in August and I have always been fascinated by both his body of work and the way that he put the word soundscape really on the map and uh, his book, the soundscape, I have very mixed feelings about. And, and so the, both the criticisms of his work and, and the lasting legacy of his work are fascinating to me. So I'm doing this, I did this two part series where I've, I've interviewed people who worked very closely with him, like Hildegard Westerkamp, but also people who have criticized him heavily, like Jonathan Stern. And I mean, this has eaten my life for the past 
three months. Like since I heard he passed away, this is what I've been doing because I'm trying to weave all these different voices together and tell this story. And then there's like, I don't have a, you know, a fact checker. Um, you know, there's just like, it's, yeah, it's every bit. I mean, it's the, these two episodes, which are going to run, you know, 30 to 40 minutes each are together way more work than a typical journal article would be for me. What do I do with that? I don't know. <laughs> no, I, 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 I mean, this is the, a, a key question when I listen to your podcast for me, because like in, I, I try to make my, the cinematologist quite as good as I can, but it's not one that requires that level of sound design to begin with. And plus, you know, if there's mistakes on it, I can kind of let it go, you know what I mean? <laughs> a little bit. Whereas yeah. the production value on yours is so high. And, it, you know, it's almost like implicit within the form that if there's mistakes, you're going to not look good as a sound designer. Do you know what I mean? Which is very different to me. Yes. Yes. That's a great way. <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So, yeah, I just I mean, it's so interesting to me how where the the value and the motivation, it's almost as if like academia doesn't have the doesn't have the infrastructure or the kind of kind of cultural understanding of why this has value you know in, in inherent in it you know if you if you think about the way that that the we that academia and place value on certain things in terms of journal articles and publications and that kind of stuff you know it's it i, I yeah it's it's a really difficult question i think well and i think it's going to be our responsibility to articulate what value this brings like it's a completely fair question for my university to ask uh why are you spending all your time doing this right and i need to have an answer um and I, i'm gonna have to be able to compare it to the things that are legible to the academy right now so again like the one one piece is sort of a popularization or a translation of another academic's work Whereas the Schaefer piece, I really feel like it's an it's an original piece of research from the get go. And, and so then it becomes a question of, well, what do we do in terms of peer review and that sort of thing? You know, there's a, I'm sure you've you've had the folks from Canada in who are working on peer reviewed podcasts and stuff like like we have yeah. those guys are like I'm so impressed and excited by what they're doing. And I want to figure out like does phantom power need to engage with that you know these are all things that i could use advice on <laughs> yeah yeah no no i know i know what you mean it's the and same here i mean it just seems to me it seems to me quite sad though that say for example you know i don't know whether this happens to you but that moment when somebody from the university comes in and says well just just transcribe it and publish the transcripts. Yeah, yep. You know what I mean? And it's like, it goes back to what you said at the beginning about the idea of information versus phenomenological material experiences. And you don't get that without, without listening to it. It's a listened to piece, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I will say that like when I went up for, for tenure, I put Phantom Power in my dossier and I did, I refused to put it down as service, you know, like, and to their credit, my understanding is my external reviewers are like, this show brings value to the Academy. It, it's an, a known entity and, and they, they spoke up for it. 
And, and so I think part of it is also just going to be the people in our field, the, the senior people in our field being willing to stand up for these new modes of scholarship and communication. And we could, we, if you want, we could also talk about, you know, like what I do think this brings to the table that a written article doesn't bring, you know, like what kind of arguments do we have? <laughs> I think there is so much to be said in terms of the idea of the way that sound can put certain em emphases and alter a meaning that is just on the on the written page. I mean, I'll just give you an example. The other the other day, I went to see in London um, Macbeth uh, on stage, and then the next day, I went to see the new Cohen Joel Cohen movie, which is Macbeth with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, and the metier difference between the play text on the page, then being adapted to a, a theatre production, then being on the screen and all the devices that cinema brings changed the play entirely, you know, at a fundamental material level. And I think that often that is just kind of like put to one side when we're thinking about how, how to ground knowledge and anchor knowledge in in ways that the, the university can kind of handle and and even quantify, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. hundred percent. I love, I love that example. That's beautiful. And yes, it's, it's the legacy of that, you know, enlightenment mind body split and the privileging of the written word as being everything. When we're working in sound, there's an entire affective component of one resonating body causing resonances in a listening body you know the the resonance of my voice resonating through your body when when you're listening it's sort of the, the spinozan sense of of affect right where one body acts upon another it's not that the silent page can't do that you know deleuze and guattari like to write about how the text can do things but there are different affective potentials and affordances that podcast offers and then it also helps us move and and I wrote about this in the the book chapter that you sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, but like thinking back to that old triad that the Greeks had of logos, ethos, pathos, right? Like pod, podcasting helps us move away from this reliance on just the word back to this more ancient integration of like the character of the speaker coming through the voice and the generation of emotion through the voice and sound and music and silence. Um, so like the, the ethos and the pathos coming back into scholarship, I think is really exciting. And then just really concrete things like for sound scholars and for ethnographers showing your work, like, okay, I make, I'm making these claims. And this is one thing that I, th I think videographic criticism, which I'm very inspired by does so well show your work. I'm making claims about this sound or this person, this interlocutor that I had in my field work. And well, I'm going to play their voice. And now you get to judge whether my claims really hold. That's stuff that is, I'm not saying that written scholarship can't do all of those things or, you know, but it's, I think these are advantages that podcasting brings to the table and we need to think about how we can capitalize on those. So when you're putting together an episode of Phantom Power, it seems to me that you approach each episode with the aim of trying to make the episode in the spirit of the sound artist or the, you know, the humanities um, scholar 
that you are focusing on. And there's often interviews with the person themselves or scholars who are, who have commented on the work and then the scripted monologue from you and then you're using part of the sound as examples as case studies and stuff like that and that's why that's why I love this show so much because it's not documentary it's you know it's partly experimental sort of soundscaping that you can listen to there's also a self-reflexive element where you're often commenting on what you think the impact is of the work maybe on yourself but on the field but do you have kind of like a is it is it totally arbitrary in terms of each episode is just going to kind of happen you know because a lot of the time if I'm producing something that's more that has lots of different elements in it it kind of just appears on my editing timeline and takes shape almost accidentally you know what I mean yeah yeah absolutely um I would say a lot of it is rather haphazard and and it results from a lot of playing around and then like getting rid of things that don't work and trying again. That's part of what makes it take so long. So I could give an example, like right, right before this interview, the thing that I was working on. So I'm talking about this, this concept of schizophonia that our Murray Schaefer um, put forward this, this idea of sounds being split from their sources. And I was scripting out like what I was going to say about that. And I, I it popped into my mind that like, really, I think this is Schaefer's way of trying to get us goldfish to see the bowl of water that we're swimming in, right? Like we're always immersed in these mediated sounds, but we rarely stop to notice the fact that they're mediated sounds. And I think it could be useful in that way. But the problem is there's also like this kind of ableist and denigrating <laughs> cast to this word that he very purposefully was making you know having these connotations of schizophrenia um and he's basically saying that those sounds aren't real sounds because they're mediated and they're they're like a kind of pollution that we that we swim in so now he didn't use the goldfish bowl or anything but I, to me that was like a, a good metaphor and then i thought I, I it popped into my head that i should try to sound that metaphor out so you know right before we had this interview, I was like starting to work on, okay, where can I find sounds that sound like a goldfish, you know, and maybe I need to go mic up a bowl of water and splash my hand in it. Like the goldfish is dying. And I like, can I mix in the sounds of noise to signify like the dirty water that the, the polluted water and have like a mix of, of, of static and my hand splashing in the water, the goldfish is dying. Is that going to read? Well, there's no way to f find that out w without just trying it. <laughs> so, you know, I'm probably going to spend like 30, 40 minutes today messing around with this goldfish sound <laughs> and maybe it's going to make it into the show or not. You'll have to tune in to find out. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that leads me on to the question that, you know, um, how, do you think that podcasting has yet had a, like a significant or a tangible effect, say, on sound studies as a discipline or ethnomusicology, or is it just seen as a kind of, just an, like another way of getting work out there or distributed, I suppose? So I know that I use podcasts in my sound studies class um they are every bit as important as the readings um and in fact david hendy's wonderful series noise a human history 
it's it's a a bbc production i mean that is that is a the central text in my undergraduate sound studies class and it's the podcast that's the text not not the the written book that came out to accompany it because that the sounds from the from the bbc archives or i believe oh no it's i forget what archives they got so many of those sounds from the british museum maybe british library yeah yeah anyway yeah the sounds are so important and i've i've had a lot of folks tell me that they use phantom power in their classrooms um and i i, I think you know if we're talking about something like jennifer stover's book the sonic color line it's really great to be able to play these different examples of this kind of racialized listening and and to play the examples of people who pushed back against that and for students to listen to that and hear that and, and resonate with that which brings up a one really important point for this kind for the kind of thing that we're trying to do which is sometimes the sounds are there to get people to pause and ruminate a little bit on what was just said to give a little space because one of the disadvantages from working in a time-based medium like podcasting is you can't just look up from the page that easily. I, I, I get the sense that people don't just pause podcasts to stop and contemplate what they just heard. I could be wrong about that. So I try to, I try to build those pauses into the show when I think that they might be useful. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, maybe you could say something on this. I mean, you've, you've really sort of talked brilliantly about it anyway, but you know, in the, in the piece that you have written that we contacted over anyway, and this is a, a piece entitled The Scholarly Podcast, Form and Function in Audio, and that's in Saving New Sounds, which is edit, edited by Jeremy Wade Morrison and Eric Hoyt, which is you know a great read sort of generally, but I kind of zoned in on your piece because I was writing something myself on the conception of academic podcasting or scholarly podcasting. And I, I really sort of liked that, the way that you've taxonomized audio academia because you know that the that, that sense that there is a lot of audio happening in academia which is may not be what we associate with what have now what's now become sort of commercial commercial podcasting but that that sense of scholarly podcasts having two forms maybe you could say a little bit about those and then how you sort of progress to thinking about phantom power as a as a third way Oh yeah, I look forward to reading that piece you're working on. That that sounds really helpful. I kind of made this little taxonomy. I would be excited to hear criticisms of it because um, this is just observational on on my part. But I suggested that there are two main types of audio academia that I hear. Um, one of which I call lo-fi high register. <laughs> I know this is like a little too Marshall McLuhan or something. I don't know, but uh, hot and cold media, but you know, low, lo-fi high register is the term that I use for podcasts like the New Books Network podcasts and a lot of podcasts that are, you know, like this, like two, two scholars just having a conversation, right? It's the academy speaking to itself often, although eavesdroppers are definitely invited when it comes to a lot of these shows, but um, especially the New Books Network, I would say, um, 
they they have a huge listenership suggesting that it is not just scholars who are listening to their their stuff but it's got a kind of punk rock ethos right where you just it, the sound quality doesn't matter um a lot of times people are just speaking through their laptop mics and the the density of information is fantastic because people are just speaking quickly and back and i love that stuff i am i mean i would say most of the podcasts i listen to are kind of in that genre right and then the other thing that i've noticed when it comes to scholarship being presented in podcast is what i called hi-fi mid-register which is more like um shows like radio lab freakonomics shows where people are translating journalists are translating scholarship with high production values often narrativizing it and spreading it to a wider audience so the register of discourse is mid-level it's maybe not that useful for scholars always but it can be um but it's more about popularizing this stuff and and those are the two genres that i saw most commonly and then what i kind of argued for and what what we are attempting to do in phantom power is another way that kind of splits the difference so it's I think I just called it a third way. I I don't remember what exactly what I called it, but like the idea of thinking, keeping the level of discourse high, but always defining your terms so that eavesdroppers will feel more, or, or actually not even thinking of them as eavesdroppers, but just like broadening the audience and trying to make it useful to scholars and non experts alike, which is really tough. And then also thinking about the sound design as a part of the scholarship itself and not just a mode of entertainment, but also trying to be entertaining. (laughs) So it's kind of trying to do everything. And I don't think we always succeed, honestly, but that's the thing that I'm grappling towards. I really like the way that you you touch upon both the aesthetic, sound aesthetic elements of trying to do what you're doing, but also the cultural, economic, uh, higher education barriers that make it difficult. Like, say, for example, sort of saying your partner, you know, is no longer doing it anymore. He's having to do, he's going off to do his own thing. So then there's a question about how much you can uh, realistically do on your own. And these are sort of conversations that that I had with myself in terms of the idea of a, a third way and what are the, the true potentials of that being adopted, you know, widely by academics. Oh yeah, and and um, and I should say that you know there are there are some folks who have stepped in, who are helped me produce the show, Craig Ely, who produced some of our episodes, um, and who now is uh, working on Song Exploder. So I don't know if wow. you could have have time to <laughs> for my little podcast anymore. Sure. Um, but but uh, yeah, and then we have Amy Sherseth, who is a PhD candidate at University of Chicago, and Ravi Krishnaswamy, who is a, a PhD student at Brown, and and they are producing episodes as well. And and so we have some really talented people that are helping me out with this right now sure so mac thanks so much for your time i just one more one more question if i may which emerges out of one of the episodes i was listening to which is one of the ones you put up on your feed in the summer 
um, which wasn't origi- an original sort of Phantom Power episode, but was originally aired on Real Life, the magazine show for digital media. And this is where you're talking a little bit about some of the stuff that you cover in your book, Hush, um, about media and sonic self-control, which is what you were talking about at the very beginning. So we kind of come round to, you know, full circle in terms of that that kind of uh, discussion about what sound media does. So if you think about the, the the fact that podcasting has come on the back of radio, um, we we seem to, we we tend to have this kind of linear thought process about you know how media develops, and we 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 kind of take that for granted that this happened, then this happened, and it's all for a reason. But it seems to me now that sound is entering a new phase in which it's becoming much more important within not just the the sharing of information, but also how we interact with media. If you think of AI, voice recognition, you know, smart speakers at home, it seems we're entering a phase where, you know, we speak to machines as much as we type on them. And and how might that change that nature of experience, you know, in terms of how much we let the world affect us, as you've put it in that that piece? Oh, yes, yes. This is something I'm deeply interested in and... Uh, it really moves us beyond thinking about sound representationally and informatically, and again, moves us back into thinking about it effectively, um, how sound can be an interface with the lived experience of the world, right? Like um, the fact that we are soundtracking our whole lives, people use mediated sound for all kinds of very personal purposes, whether it's concentration or relaxation. And and those things are sort of encouraged and almost necessitated by the neoliberal environment that we live in, that we need to use these technologies as a technology of the self in order to sort of withstand the pressures of being a free agent who has to figure out how to maximize all these opportunities as podcast producers or whatever, right? Like I think one of the interesting things to think about in terms of podcasting itself is it's a, it's a very neoliberal genre, right? Like, like it's all about the end of the freedom of the individual producer. And I, I remember angering some popular music studies folks like uh, well over a decade ago, like by saying, indie rock and indie music is like as neoliberal as it gets, right? Because it's all about like, I don't need the record label. I can do this thing on my own. But then sure enough, like as time went on, like everything became in indie rock. Like there's no safety net for anything. Everybody has to be this free agent. And that requires a lot of energy and a lot of sort of comforting like we need comfort and and so we i think these kinds of sonic bubbles that we make for ourselves are there to help help us navigate these kinds Mm. of treacherous waters that that we're inhabiting right now it made me think like say something like the white noise app you know it's like on the one hand you could sort of say oh it's good it helps that the the baby to get to sleep what a great what a great invention but then it's kind of like also Part of that is also, you know, I'm having stresses at work. So what do you do? You don't lessen the stress at work. You have an app which helps you to get through that that kind of comfort. And it made me think about podcasting generally. And I'm always thinking about my motivations for doing it or anybody's motivations for doing it. And like you could sort of say, well, you know, if you're if you're making a 
uh, a podcast, let's say, about mental health or about about anything. It doesn't even have to be about mental health. But what are you making it for? How, where is the balance between I am making it for an audience who needs to have this information or how much am I making it because it provides a bubble of the self that I enjoy being in? And then, you know, when you associate that with the neoliberal projects, oh, well, I can actually monetize that now. (laughs) It all kind of fits together in this sort of weird jigsaw, doesn't it? You know, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. (laughs) Well, Mac, thank you so much for all the time you've given over to talking to me. I really appreciate it. Oh, man, I've really enjoyed it. You asked, asked such fantastic questions. It's been fun. So thanks very much, Mac, for taking the time out and being so superb, I thought, there in uh, in dealing with, you know, the questions and the, the conversation. I really enjoyed the chat myself. Laurie, what did you make of that? Well, I have to admit, I was really excited that you were speaking with him. I'm a little bit of a fangirl, if, if that's not too crazy to admit. I mean, Mac is one of those people that really uh, straddles both the sound studies aspect of things and also is a podcast producer. And so I'm a little bit in awe of someone who can write an entire book uh, on sound studies and also produce this very high level podcast. And, and I thought that your conversation with him was fascinating. There were so many things in it that resonated with me. I, too, teach sound studies. And I love the way he characterized sound studies as an opportunity to be awake and that that it engenders an awareness of the physical environment that we're in. And so I think, you know, that kind of gives me a a slightly new perspective on what it is I'm doing by teaching sound studies. Uh, You know, what are the students getting out of it? And so many of them do come back to me later and say, you know, I just never really would have thought of listening to this or being aware of this. And I'm so much more aware of my surroundings. And, you know, I, I guess I never thought of that necessarily as a as a huge learning outcome. I think it is actually in my learning outcomes, but nonetheless, it just really resonated. And it was interesting that he's he's changing from or he's trying to incorporate more practice into his course, which was, you know, primarily theoretical. Uh, and I come to it from the opposite end where I'm used to teaching courses that are very practice based. Um, and then there was a transition in my career where I began to teach much more theoretical based things and thought I wasn't really doing a good jo- job at that. So I think if Mac and I kind of get together, maybe we should co-teach. We'd be in the perfect spot. So <laughs> He also mentioned how he did the, the one episode that took this, uh, the piece by Mara Mills, which involved an audio based Rorschach test uh, and turned that into an episode of Phantom Power. And some of the things he said about that really I found fascinating. So one of them was that he he said that what he was doing there was a translation of someone else's scholarship. And he and he said that it was not original scholarship. And I had to pause the listening to the interview at that point to, to really unpack that because I think, well, it must be some form of original scholarship to take someone's written work and translate it into a completely different medium. And I know that when we build on previous uh, scholarship, to quote unquote translate it often means to use a new theoretical lens, a new theoretical framework through which to evaluate that work. And that could be thought of as, as what we typically do when we're translating 
uh, a written piece into another written piece, right? But I wondered about if we're translating it from written to a podcast, is that reframing, is the framework, can it be a medial framework rather than a theoretical framework, if you see where I'm going with that? Uh, you know, and that opens up the possibilities of poking at and probing the idea of what does sound scholarship bring to the academy? Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question. And it does tie into that kind of broader question that we we, we touched upon in terms of what what is scholarship through sound in its own right, in that sense, you know, without that connection to something else as an anchoring point, which is usually, a you know, an academic text. So if you're taking somebody else's work and then and then reframing it, I think I can see on the one hand, yeah, it, maybe he just feels as a practitioner, it's just I'm putting this in the medial framework to be made accessible in a certain kind of way and doesn't feel like he wants to add, he's adding anything to it. Yet what you're kind of arguing there is the listening process is an addition that is unique. Yeah, he he's filtering it through a certain lens, I think, and making it accessible through sound media. And there has to be something in that that, you know, for me, I think this is part of what we are hoping to fight for, really, the idea that that kind of approach and that kind of translation, if you will, is, in fact, of of high value to the academy and should be considered that. And I think we're just, you know, we're at the cusp of entering into, I hope, an era where where that is the case, where someone like Mac, who is doing this incredible work, won't have to, won't think that it's it's not original scholarship. And I thought, no, we got we got to put that through the ringer a little bit and figure out <laughs> how it does um, tick the box of original scholarship. Yeah, I suppose the the tendency would be to think of that reframing as similar to, say, a translation of a text in a different language. You know, you wouldn't give the translator a credit as being the author. You you know, the translator is a very particular kind of uh, position, I think, in, in understanding how the knowledge is being transmitted in a communication sense, right? And maybe the translator does have, the, the writer may acknowledge that the translator has added something to it in some way, shape or form. I've seen that happen where, a, you know, a, a, a writer has sort of said, the translator has, has actually added to this piece. I've I've seen that. So it is something I think about where the location of of the the origin, I suppose, or the the authorship actually actually lies. And it's you know coming from cinema studies, you know, the idea of authorship is always a, a what's the word I'm looking for a tenuous argument about who is the the proponent or the author of of a particular text. It's a definitely an interesting point. And I've got the, um, to be just to be honest as well, I just ordered uh, Mac's book, Hush, because, you know, it looks like something that is so pertinent for today's culture. You know, this sort of idea of what he talked about in the interview, you know, Orphic Media, I had to kind of write that down and sort of think, okay, so I need to look that up. You know, this idea of technologies that, that give the users freedom, in inverted commas, to remain unaffected by distracting noises from the outside and how that process is, is ingrained within, you know, the, the, the narratives of capitalism so that we can keep being producers and all of this kind of stuff. When really, I mean, I think the argument he makes in that, in that book, just reading the synopsis is that, you know, in, an, in the noisy world of haters, trolls, information overload, we are always trying to guard ourselves using this sort of sense of self-care. But that we, what we actually do is shield ourselves from tolerance for different types of sound that may be things that we 
uh, are unexpected to us represent social and cultural difference, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I want to mention is I'm super excited to hear the episodes that Mac is working on now on Armory Schaefer. Have you have you heard? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I listen to them both. They're, they're they're excellent and and kind of really they do that thing where they they give someone their due, but also you know they're very critical in in the right way of you know somebody's work and the context of their work and what what maybe they were trying to say at certain points and how that now looks fairly problematic so there's an there's a an engagement with the fact that this comes from a particular cultural historical moment but also some of the problems with that, you know, and how people have critiqued it going forward. Yeah, I think that's probably going to end up in my course syllabus because I do struggle with, you know, Armory Schaefer being the father of acoustic ecology and just uh, so much of sound studies finds its roots in his work. But there is lots that is problematic about it. So I've, I've often struggled with how to present that to students who are learning about it for the first time. And how far do you go with the critique, you know, without sort of presenting it and critiquing it and then them thinking... So what's the point? Why are you telling me about this person? If it, <laughs> Right. So finding that balance. So I look forward to, to hearing what Max take is on that. Great. So that will just about do it for 2021. Laurie, thanks so much for uh, coming on board this, uh, this season. You've definitely added an awful lot. <laughs> thanks very much. I mean, I do. <laughs> I at least bring a love of talking and I certainly have learned a lot. It's been uh, challenging, honestly, to be part of these conversations because it means a lot of um, keeping up with the reading and listening and being able to hopefully sound a little bit like I <laughs> have something to contribute. But I am really appreciative that you invited me on to do this because I'm really getting a lot out of it. Thanks. No worries at all. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to continuing after the, the new year. So um, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the the revamped podcast please if you like the show raters reviewers on apple podcasts on good pods on podchaser <laughs> or wherever you listen to your podcasts as we discussed earlier it's what the algorithm requires <laughs> yes and subscribe and unsubscribe and resubscribe many many times if you will <laughs> Do contact us if you've got comments. We'd love to hear from you, as we mentioned before. That's the our extrinsic motivation is hearing back from you. So let us know if you've got comments, questions, or if you have audio that you'd like to share in this forum. So perhaps you would like to produce an episode for us or you'd like to be a guest. Get in touch. You can reach us on email at podcaststudiespodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at podstudiespod. And until next year, this has been the Podcast Studies Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>